for, for us to celebrate Holy Week. Now, Holy Week is, is, is a phrase we don't always say in Baptist circles, but it's just that idea of this week uh, is, the, is the last week of Jesus's life. And we celebrate that and think about that and use that time to reflect on, um, reflect on this week, this Holy Week. And there's a few lasts that Jesus goes through. If you've, you've ever done anything in life, there's, you've probably done a few lasts, right? When you're in high school, uh, you walk out of that building one last time as a senior, and then you're done. You're done with high school. Um, there's all kinds of lasts that we come to in our life. Well, Jesus has several lasts that he sees this week. Today, we're going to look at the last ride and the last supper of Jesus. The last ride and the last supper. In Matthew's gospel, as in all the other gospels, he slows down to focus on Holy Week. If you take Matthew's gospel and you broke it up kind of numerically, he spends about 25% of the whole gospel on the last week of Jesus' life. You ever thought about that? The first 33 or so years is spent in, the, in, in those, that first 75% of the book, but then the last 25% slows down and focuses on that one last week. That should show you the importance and the emphasis all the gospel writers put on this very event. John even does uh, a lot more because he, he spends time uh, talking about the upper room discourse about how Jesus uh, washes disciples' feet. So all of the gospels make much of this last Holy Week. And we need to, I think as well, make much of this week because this is the most important week in the history of mankind. We've done a lot of great things as humans. We went to the moon. We've, we've created cell phones and the internet. Um, there's a lot of important weeks that we could point to. The, we could point back to the ends of wars and the signings of, of treaties and all kinds of things like that. But nothing surpasses this week as far as the importance and relevance it has to each and every single one of our lives. And I pray that we sitting here in Commerce America 2,000 years after this week happened, that we can remember this week still has impact on me today. In my life and the things I do on a normal basis, the way I parent, the way I'm a spouse, the way I'm a, an employee, this last week has impact on us. So I read during the scripture reading the, the, uh, the, the triumphant entry as Jesus walked into Jerusalem that one last time. So I'm not going to read through that again, but I do want to make some comments on it as we look at the last ride that Jesus had. And then we'll transition to looking at that last supper that Jesus had, that last ride, and then transition to the last supper. During his last ride into Jerusalem, we see this. His last ride was celebrated by some. His last ride was celebrated by some people. As Jesus walked into um, the city that day, it was, it was, a, it was an event. It was, an, it was a commotion. The whole the whole city was made aware of the fact that this was happening. And many people were there celebrating the fact that Jesus was entering into the, the city. They took off their coats and they laid them on the ground so that even his donkey wouldn't be getting his feet dirty as this king was entering his city. And some of them also took palm branches, which is why we call this day Palm Sunday. Palm branches were a sign of victory or victor uh, uh, as a king would return from, from, from war. They would use those palm branches as victory to show that there was peace now. So the, these people were celebrating Jesus and what they were chanting to him was this. They were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. That word in Hebrew is, is save us now, save us now. 
These people saw Jesus as an answer, as a salvation, as some kind of salvation. The crowds were chanting Hosanna, and they were also chanting Son of David. Everybody knows who David is, right? He's the goat. He's the greatest of all time. He's the, he's the greatest king there was in the history of kings for, for, Jerusalem, for the Israelites. Um, he, was, he, was, he wasn't the first king, but he was the greatest one. He was the one that we say he's a man after God's own heart. And it was promised to David that someone would come after him and God would establish his, his, his descendants' kingdom forever. And that a descendant from the line of David would be on the throne forever. And they were saying, as Jesus was walking in, Hosanna to the son of David. They were acknowledging, hey, this is the Messiah. They were crying out for salvation and they were crying out for a savior. That's what the the Messiah was meant to do to save them. But I don't think these people knew exactly what they wanted saving from or what they needed saving from. See, they had an idea that they were to be saved politically. They were looking for political salvation. This crowd of people was part of the Jewish community who was being oppressed by the Romans. See, the the Roman Empire started in Italy, had spread out so much that it had taken over Judea, the place where Israel was. It had taken over that part of the world and they were subjected to the Roman laws. Um, They were subjected to the Roman rule. They had to follow what the emperor had said. So these people were oppressed. They were being pushed down. They were subjected to the rule of the Romans. In some sense, you could say they were prisoners, which kind of fit their history. The Israelites had found themselves as prisoners many, many times in their history. They were prisoners in Egypt. They were prisoners in Assyria and Babylon. And now they're even prisoners in their home nation. They've been subject And they were prisoners to this nation. And I think all of us can probably realize we find ourselves subject to things as well. We're we're prisoners to some things as well. There's a lot of things that come into our lives that take over our lives. Whether that's sickness or sin or oppression. Whatever that might be. All of us can feel some kind of of, uh, the way that we're imprisoned to something. Just as these people did. And they realized they needed to cry out for salvation. But again, they were crying out for political salvation. They wanted to be saved from the Romans. But Jesus had other plans. He didn't plan to save them from the Romans. No matter how bad to the bone the Romans seemed, no matter how dire their situation was, he had other plans. He came not to save them politically, but to save them spiritually from their sins. And his last ride, again, was celebrated by some people. Also, his last ride was despised by others. Celebrated by some, despised by others. In Luke's account of this, I'll remember all four Gospels mention this event of Jesus riding into Jerusalem. In Luke, it mentions this at the, toward the end, after, after the crowds are chanting Hosanna to Son of David, the Pharisees, those, those religious goody-two-shoes, that kind of ruled the town, said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke your disciples. Meaning, what they're saying to you is wrong. What they're saying to you is wrong. They were trying to be theologically correct, weren't they? They were trying to say, hey, they're crying out to you for you to save them, that you're the Messiah. You need to tell them they're wrong. That's not the truth. 
They were trying to be theologically correct. They were trying to say, hey, we don't believe. We only believe in one God. And we don't believe that this Messiah is going to save, things, save us in this way. They were trying to be theologically correct. But they were, unfortunately, incorrect, weren't they? So both the crowd and the Pharisees in some way had Jesus misunderstood. The crowds were like, hey, we're going to have this, this political king come and save us. The Pharisees didn't think Jesus was a Messiah, didn't think he was coming. So both of the crowds were, or both of these, both of these groups were wrong in some sense. And Jesus replies to the Pharisees. He says this in verse 40 of Luke 19. He answered, I tell you, if these people are silent, the stones are going to cry out. The stones are going to cry out because Jesus was on a mission that was 100% intentional and he could not fail this mission. He was going to receive glory from God's creation no matter what happened. And he says, even if people aren't going to praise me, the rocks are going to cry out. They're going to open their mouth. I'm going to receive the honor that's due to me no matter what happens, no matter who's praising me. I'm going to receive that. So his last ride was celebrated by some was despised by others. His last ride was intentional. His last ride was intentional. Jesus was coming into Jerusalem for a reason. It wasn't just like a, a, a random trip to Joplin. He was like, yeah, what do you guys want to do this afternoon? Go, let's, let's just go to Joplin and hang out. It wasn't like that. Jesus had planned on this day for a long time. In Luke's account, the triumphal entry, you could say, doesn't start at the triumphal entry. It actually starts way back in chapter 9 when it says this. Luke said, When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go. He, he, he locked on coordinates toward Jerusalem. And then, 10 chapters later, he enters Jerusalem. So for 10 chapters, Jesus is on this slow, methodical, intentional march to the city where he would die. Day in, day out, taking one more step closer to that place where he was going to die. He knew what was coming. He knew what was coming and he was intentionally going there. Matthew gives us a little more insight into his purpose for going to die for our sins. Matthew quoted the book of Zechariah from the Old Testament. That's what Matthew does. He takes a portion of the Old Testament and applies it to Jesus. And this is the, this is the full quote from where Matthew pulls from in Zechariah, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Your king is coming to you. That's what Matthew's saying. Here's your king. He's riding into your town right now. He's come to you. Righteousness and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He goes on to say, I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule will be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As, you all, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. So you can see that passage of scripture that Matthew's quoting and pulling from is a passage about this Messiah who would come and bring peace. 
It says the, 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 the war bows, the war horses, the war horses are going to be chained up. The bows are going to be put down. There's going to be no need for all that because this, this Messiah that's coming is going to bring peace. He's not riding a war horse. He's riding a donkey, the sign of victory as a king would return. He was going to bring peace. And again, that peace eventually does look like peace on earth. But immediately, at first, it was peace in your soul. It was peace. It was uh, freedom from sin. Freedom from sin that this king was going to bring. So his walk into Jerusalem was intentional. Day in, day out. Like I said, from chapter 9, he was intentionally walking toward Jerusalem to die the death that he had come to die. His last ride into Jerusalem was intentional and his last ride was lonely. His last ride was lonely. In all the Gospels, Jesus seems to be misunderstood often. In that sea of of people, as Jesus was walking in, there was palm branches, uh, basically confetti in the air and people chanting his name. In all that hoopla, Jesus was, in some sense, alone and lonely because he knew that everyone around him, in some form or fashion, didn't understand what was about to happen to him. His disciples, he had told them, the Gospels record three times, he had said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be offered up. The Gentiles are going to kill me and I'm going to rise from the dead. And his, and his disciples were just like, I don't get what you're trying to say to me. It's, it's going over my head. Are you... Is he talking in metaphors? And in their defense, Jesus often did talk in metaphors and in parables a lot. But in this instance, he was telling them the truth, the literal truth. He was going to die. He was going to rise again. But his disciples didn't understand him. Have you ever been at that point where you're explaining some of your troubles uh, to a friend or a family member and they're just not getting it? They're just like, you just feel like you don't understand what I'm going through. Jesus felt that. Jesus spoke to his closest friends about what was facing him, what he was going to do, and they just didn't quite get him. They didn't understand where he was coming from. They didn't get it. The crowds that were shouting his name, that were, that were chanting, Hosanna to the son of David. We like you. You're awesome. They liked him today, but in a week, they're going to be disliking him because the, the Pharisees, that other group of people that was there, they end up convincing this crowd to turn on Jesus. And instead of saying, Hosanna, save us, They say crucify him in a week. Jesus knew that was coming. Can you imagine being around a group of people that you know, in one sense, are fake? Being around a group of people that are patting you on the back and cheering your name, knowing in less than seven days, this group of people is not going to be doing that. They're not going to be patting my back. They're going to be nailing my hands. Jesus knew that in that moment. So this last ride that Jesus had as he walked into Jerusalem was a lonely ride. Jesus knows what it's like to feel alone and misunderstood. And if that's you, know that you're in good company. If you've ever felt alone, misunderstood, Jesus also felt that. And we need Jesus to help us understand what he was about to do, or we're going to find ourselves in the same place as those disciples, as that crowd, or those Pharisees, misunderstanding what it is that Jesus was coming to do. We can find ourselves misunderstanding what Jesus came to do. And that's a very grave mistake to make. If we don't understand what it was Jesus was coming to make, our lives are at stake, our eternities are at stake. 
Which brings us from Jesus' last ride to Jesus' last supper, where he takes time to say, this is what I've come to do. He sits down with his disciples who, remember, they had misunderstood what he was coming to do this whole time. He sits down with them the last night before he's going to uh, face trials and go through the crucifixion. He sits down with them and gives them this last supper, actually a meal that we're about to take um, as a family of believers. Uh, In a few moments, we're going to take this cloth off of here and there's going to be revealed to you um, some little crackers that we're going to call bread and, and some grape juice, grape juice that we're going to call the cup, the bread and the cup. Jesus sat down with his disciples and had a very similar meal to this. And I think what Jesus, when he sits down with his disciples in Matthew 26 to have this last supper after he's had this last ride, I think he conveys to them three things, three truths that you find in this meal that I want you to be aware of as we take this meal in a few moments. One, this meal is about the past. This meal is about the past. The reality of Christ's sacrificial death. As you take this meal, it's supposed to remind you of the past. The reality of Christ's sacrificial death. This is a memorial of what Christ has done. His body was broken for you. When I say you, don't hear me saying just y'all, but you individually. Hear that. Hear your name in that. Christ's body was broken for you. And his blood was shed for you. For the remission of sins. And it can feel really distant. This, this death that Jesus died 2,000 years ago, it can feel distant and, and disconnected from us here on the other side of the earth. But Jesus in his wisdom, God in his wisdom has given us this meal to remind us of how real his sacrifice was for you. Christians, over the years, through the century, through the millennia, have done what we're about to do. It's been passed on to us of what was given to us. And we pass it on what was, has been given to us, that Jesus died for our sins. And in a moment, as you take this, this, this bread and you put it into your mouth and your teeth grind it and break that bread, as real as that feels to you in that moment, that's how real Christ's death was for you. His body truly was broken for you. And as you take that cup and you feel that juice go over your tongue and down your throat, as real and tangible as that feels to you, that's how real Christ's blood was shed for you. He gives us, that we, we, we can't see his death with our own eyes, but he gives us this memorial to remind us of how real and tangible his death is for you. So as you take this, be reminded, Jesus died for you, his body broken and his blood shed. So think of the past when you take this meal. Also, I want you to think of the present. Think of the right now. Jesus, when he gave this meal, he gave it to a group of believers. There were 12 of them there. A group of believers. He gave it to them to celebrate together. And this points us to the single unifying idea that unites all Christians. Is that Christ died for us and rose from the dead. And we have faith in that. That's the uniting factor For all of us, we have one faith, one Lord. We have one faith that we all trust in. We have one thing that connects us, and that's the sacrificial death of Jesus. So as you think of the present, think of the unity of Christ's redeemed people. As you think of the past, you think of the reality of Christ's sacrificial death. In the present, we think of the unity of Christ's redeemed people. As you take this meal, you eat that bread and that juice, you're going to look around and there's other people taking that meal with you. And you think... 
Jesus died for me. But also as you see somebody else take that meal, realize Jesus died for them. Jesus died for them. They're a child of God. They're forgiven for their sins. Even the sins that they've committed against me. Maybe that's the case. But you look and you see, not only am I forgiven, but the people next to me, as they take this meal, remind them that they are forgiven as well. So we think of the past, we think of the present, and also, finally, we think of the future. Jesus says in Matthew 26, when he instituted this, at the end of it, he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. So this meal is supposed to remind us of the past, of his sacrifice, of the present, of our unity. And finally, it thinks, makes us think of the future, which is the certainty of Christ's triumphant return. One day he will return for his people. In his first coming, he was humble, born in a, in a, in a, in a manger, riding a donkey into, into the city, mild-mannered and humble, dying a servant's death. He was in, in his first coming, he was a, a sacrificial servant. But in his next coming, he's the conquering king. And he will come to bring and inaugurate the kingdom that he gained when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. He's going to inaugurate that kingdom. Right now, as we look in the world, it probably doesn't feel like Jesus is reigning. It probably doesn't feel like he's won the battle. It probably doesn't feel like that. But no that that reality of Christ dying on, the, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, that reality is true. It is established, and he's going to bring that and inaugurate it when he comes. If you think of our, our system of, of president, um, we have a moment when somebody's voted in the, to be a president, and then we have a moment when they're, um, when they're inaugurated. Right? They're voted, and then they're inaugurated. They're, they're the president when they're voted, but in some sense, they really become president when they're inaugurated. And that's similar to what's going on here. As Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, he secured our salvation and victory over death and sin. Yet he's going to bring that into final reality at his second coming. So in some sense, we're already saved from our sins. In another sense, we're going to be saved from our sins when Jesus comes. So as we take this meal... I want you to be reminded of those things. I want to ask you these three questions about the past, present, future. One, is there a sin in your life that you need a reminder that that sin has been paid for? Is there a sin in your life that you can't shake, that you're still battling, and that you, you need a reminder? You, In some sense, you need a receipt that proves that bill has been paid? Well, that's what the Lord's Supper is meant to be for you. If you're a believer and you've trusted in Christ, take this meal and let it remind you. My sins are really paid for. Is there a sin in your life that you need a reminder that that sin has been paid for? Number two, is there some kind of rift in a relationship between you and a fellow believer? Remember, this meal is a family meal designed to be for those who are, are part of the body of Christ. Is there a rift between you and a fellow believer? Let this meal remind you that there doesn't need to be that rift. Forgiveness can be granted among believers to one another because forgiveness has been granted to believers from God. And then finally, is there a portion of your life that reminds you of the evilness of this world and the shortness of life? Well, maybe think on that and remind you that that's not going to be the case forever, that Jesus will come back again to right all wrongs and to set all things right. Is there something in your life that reminds you of the finality of who you are? A sickness, something going on in your life. Is there something you can think of? Remind, let this meal remind you that there is a day coming when he will 
take away all of those things and set all things right. So I challenge you, think about one of those things over the next moments as we, as we pray and we're going to have a, a song of response and sing. Ponder on one of those things. Is there a sin that you need reminded that it's been forgiven? Is there a rift in a relationship in the present? Or is there something in your life that makes you long for the future, for Christ to return? Ponder on those things as we take this meal in a moment. And I remind you, like I've mentioned, this is a family meal. This is a family meal. What that means is anybody who's trusted in Christ and gone under the waters of baptism to make that public is welcome to take this meal. You don't have to be a member of the First Baptist Church of Commerce to take this meal. This is not a a Baptist meal. This is a Christian meal. This is a meal for all Christians, but it is for Christians. So as we as we in a moment as we pass these 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 elements out, um, if you would say that you are trusting in Christ for your salvation, you've turned from your sins and trusted in Him, and you've made that public by through through by going through baptism, take this meal and eat. If that's not you this morning, I would gently ask you let the, the, let that meal pass by you. Not to say you can't be part of this this family, but to say that we want you to be part of this family by putting your faith in Jesus. Making that public through baptism. We encourage you to do that. And as we do that, remember those things. That Christ died for us. That he's unified us. And that he's coming again for us. Let's pray.